Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Oh, the elves are busy in Santa's workshop at this time of year. So as we head into the big holiday gift-giving time, we're talking with some homegrown Louisiana elves for delicious inspiration. First, we'll hear from Chief Nut Officer himself, J.D. Regard, second-generation proprietor of Cane River Pecan Company. He'll tell us how the past half-century has seen his family's enterprise grow from a small Acadian pecan orchard to a purveyor of fine culinary gifts starring the state's official nut. Next, we'll speak to Christopher Nobles, of Piety and Desire Chocolates. Since founding the business in 2017, the chocolatier has been uncompromising in his reverence and passion for chocolate while balancing science and art in his bean-to-bar production. Finally, as Orleans Coffee celebrates 40 years of quenching the Crescent City's thirst, Owner Bob Arsenault recounts how this local company has expanded to a national level and describes the special anniversary blend recently introduced. So take out your holiday list and check it twice to make sure it includes homegrown gifts on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is J.D. Regard, and I am the Chief Nut Officer of Cane River Pecan Company. When people think of Louisiana, the first image that may come to mind is Body Bourbon Street. But truth be told, the Bayou State is a very family-oriented place where multiple generations can often be found in each other's company celebrating family milestones, enjoying local traditions, or even building a business. We got a close-up and personal peek inside of one of those families when we sat down with the convivial J.D. Regard, a man who loves his family, loves his culture, and loves what he does. J.D., I've talked to a lot of people over time, but you are the first nut officer of any sort, much less a chief nut officer. I'm honored. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Poppy. We're honored to be here. And of course, we've listened to your show for years, and uh, it's just an honor to be included in such a legendary show. And in a great state of Louisiana where we love our food so much. I, I would love for you to tell the story of the Cane River Pecan Company because it's pretty charming. And it all starts with your daddy and your great uncle, J.D. Henry, huh? 
That is correct. So, you know, I think when you live in a state like Louisiana, uh, I, I think you look around and you're inspired because so many other people have gotten into the food business, right? So it kind of makes you feel like, well, maybe I can do it too. And so maybe my father felt that way back in 1969 when he and his brother, my Uncle Joe, uh, who lived in New Iberia of all places, bought some pecan orchards along the scenic Cane River, which is located, of course, in Natchitoches Parish. So I, I was raised in New Iberia, but when our orchards were in Natchitoches, I tell people I have dual citizenship between Natchitoches and New Iberia. So, um, yeah, I spent a lot of my childhood going between New Iberia and Natchitoches, especially during the fall when the harvest was on. My dad's major responsibility between the two of them, he and his brother, was managing the harvest. And so I grew up in pecan orchards. Uh, and as a result, I love a good pecan orchard. It's hard for me to drive by and see a pretty pecan orchard, not stop and just look at the trees and look at the leaves. It's in your blood. In my blood. And then, of course, here in Louisiana, we're very fortunate. We have what's called a yard crop. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that so many people live in Louisiana, they have pecan trees in their yards, that they will go out every year and they will harvest by hand, of course, the pecans they want to keep, right? And they'll crack them and shell them. And back in the day, you've heard stories about maybe your aunt or your grandmother would crack pecans at the kitchen table. And then they would make some things, pies and muffins and cakes. And then perhaps they had some extra pecans they had picked and they would sell those uh, to maybe the local hardware store had a We Buy Pecan sign or, or maybe some beauty parlor in town had a We Buy Pecan sign. So people would harvest the yard crop recognizing that in 1978, when I was only a 10 or nine years old, my brothers and I to start making money, we cracked pecans. And so people would bring pecans to our house, drop them off. We would crack them and we call them, you know, a couple of days later, hey, Miss Poppy, we got your pecans ready. And you come and we'd have a fresh paper bag for you, putting them in there and we'd charge you 10 cents a pound. And we made a lot of money doing that. That is such a great story because I'll be honest with you, when I I read the timeline and such, I imagined the dad was making you guys crack oh. his pecan. <laughs> oh, that would have been too many. This was just a little home business in our garage. I mean, back in the day before all the social media, I mean, you go to the grocery store and put your business card on a cockboard, you know, and maybe run a little. We ran a little bitty, tiny ad in the Daily Iberian, which was our paper. And my dad, every week, he'd sit down and we'd divide the money four ways. He was the bank. And so he would take his share and then he'd make us pay a little bit of the phone bill because we had to call the clients and he'd make us pay our new Iberia, daily Iberian bill. And so he really taught us a lot about business and running the company. And besides that, we grew up in these orchards. So we were always right by our father's side in the barn collecting the pecans. Your mom and dad, what a pair they are. 1982 comes along, and your dad starts a retail business on Front Street in Natchitoches, the original Cane River Pecan Company. What are your memories of that? As as the kids say, it's the OG, the OG Pecan <laughs> Company, the, uh, the original one. But um, my dad would open the store seasonally, so he would only open it for about three months a year. And for those three months, people could go into that store and buy pecans direct from our farm in this store. Uh, all of Natchitoches is just beautiful at the holidays. And so it drew a lot of tourists in. And we ran that seasonal business for many years. 
Uh, and then as an offshoot of that, my mother started a mail order company. And, and she begins this by going door to door? Literally. But not to consumers, to, to business people, right? So she went to law offices, insurance offices, oil and gas offices, you know, just some of the folks in our town who had CPA firms or perhaps engineers. And she said, hey, you know, have you ever thought about giving pecans as a business gift of choice? And they had never really thought about it. And they were given whiskey and cigarettes and, uh, you know, turkeys and things like that. So she slowly converted a few folks and our mail order company was born. And like I like to tell people, I feel like our family has set out always not to maybe meet a demand of pecans, but to create a demand of pecans. Well, part of the way that you, I know, can create a desire for pecans is the various ways that you offer them. At what point did you all start sugar in your pecans, chocolate coating your pecans? How did the business evolve in that way, J.D.? That evolution happened after I returned back to Louisiana in 2002. I was living in Chicago and I was working in the sports industry. I was working as a sports executive with the Chicago Bears. And I had a slow run up to that experience that we won't get into now. But I returned to Louisiana to run the company. And uh, when I first got back, we were still just selling natural pecans by the pound. That was it. One and product. And they were all, obviously, it was just the pecan meat. You were just Correct. selling. It was a shelled produced meat, of course. So um, I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, I mean, there's opportunities with flavors and whatnot. And so we started looking around and we, we I settled on a, a praline coated, a roasted and a milk chocolate. And still to this day, there are three best selling flavors. And uh, that package that contains all three flavors is our very best seller. So we sell more chocolate pecans than non-chocolate pecans. We've expanded into cookies, we've done pies, we've done pralines, we do gourmet popcorns, but at our core, we're still a pecan company more than anything. And I, for one, cannot pass up nibbling on just natural pecans when I get a chance. <laughs> now, speaking of those pecans, what's the correlation between your orchards and what you're actually growing and what you might be sourcing elsewhere? So our company has grown quite a bit since I joined. I mean, we're shipping pecans coast to coast and sometimes globally. So I'll tell you that we have outgrown our farm years ago, meaning we were selling more pecans than we could grow. And if you know anything about pecan trees, some varieties take eight to 12 years before you can start bearing fruit from these trees. So it takes a while. You just can't go out and run out there and plant a bunch of pecan trees uh, without having that lag. So we started having to buy pecans from different shellers. And what are the hallmarks of a really good looking nut? What are you hey, looking for? I like for? that. <laughs> well, oil content is the first thing. You know, and, and what we found is that any state east of Louisiana, we're talking Alabama, uh, Georgia, Northern Florida, where we have a, an abundance of natural rainfall is where we have the best oil content. And the best oil content uh, goes hand in hand with flavor. So as you go to the drier states that have a lot of pecan production, like Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, even Arizona, 
They may have good looking nuts, but they just have a different taste quality to it. So I like to buy nuts in Louisiana and east of Louisiana. Well, J.D., goodness knows grass does not grow under your feet because <laughs> you're running this big pecan company. And as if you didn't have enough to do, last year you opened up a restaurant? For years, we've wanted, or I've wanted to open up an, a brand extension of our business. And we happen to be on Main Street in the historic district in New Iberia. So I really felt like opening a small cafe would be a benefit, not only to our company, but for the residents of this area. It's called Pie Bar, just real simply Pie Bar. And it was kind of our way of saying, you know, if we're going to be in the pecan business, you got to have pecan pie. We've also got other flavors of pie, of course, and we got soups and salads and sandwiches, and we've got a small bar you can belly up and have a pecan old-fashioned, if you wish, listen to some music on Friday afternoons. But it's a 55-seat cafe right downtown New Iberia, and it's been been very well received, very fortunate. Oh, that is just wonderful. And now you're the chief nut officer. I suspect you may have played a part in Louisiana recently naming our pecan the official state nut. So House Bill 368 that uh, flew through the legislature this past session passed without opposition straight to the governor's desk. Pecan is now the official state nut. And it will sit among the magnolia flower and the cypress tree and the Catahoula dog as official state symbols of Louisiana. I was excited to be beside the governor when he signed it into law. I brought a special pin that was made out of pecan wood that will reside in our hope to soon to be pecan museum. Oh, something else you're working on. huh? Working on that. I'm working on Louisiana's petite pecan museum. Well, J.D., you are a true blue Louisiana boy through and through, and I am so happy that we got a chance to have this little visit together and the next time over a pecan pie. A warm pecan pie, <laughs> uh, a little dollop of ice cream right on top, just the way it should be. That was J.D. Regard. Chief Nut Officer of Cane River Pecan Company, offering some delicious Louisiana-made solutions to your gift-giving needs. You'll find a link to Cane River Pecan Company on our website, poppytooker.com. Coming up next... We visit New Orleans' own boutique chocolatier when Christopher Nobles of Piety and Desire Chocolates joins us. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, 
now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. In New Orleans, the intersection of piety and desire does not exist on any map. It's actually the brainchild of Christopher Nobles, whose piety and desire craft chocolate shop sits in the lower garden district. When you step inside, you might think you've been transported to a 19th century cafe. Outfitted with a vintage saloon bar and stools, this cozy shop is a great place to sample coffee or their house specialty, artisan bonbons. This bespoke business began on Broad Street back in 2017, but has taken a big step up with their Magazine Street location. We stopped in to chat with Christopher to learn about his bean-to-bar chocolate process and the artistry he achieves with it. Christopher, you are a native New Orleanian, aren't you? Yep. So yes. how in the world did chocolate mm -hmm. become your life? Oh, well, pretty easy, I guess, uh, from growing up here. I always had uh, cooking jobs throughout high school and college. And, you know, I worked enough kitchen jobs to know that it's not what I wanted to do with my life. But I did love cooking and um, love the creativity involved and have always loved things at the intersection of art and science and always loved chocolate. So once I started dabbling in chocolate making, it was just kind of a perfect fit for me somewhere where I could um, run experiments, but then also be, you know, fanciful and creative to my art's desire. When did that lightning bolt say, chocolate, Christopher, chocolate mm -hmm. is your future? Yeah, well, ironically, it was when I stepped away from the service industry um, after many years and went back to using my degree and was uh, working in therapy, doing line therapy with autistic children. And uh, I used to bring fancy chocolate bars with me to lunch. And one of my coworkers asked me if I ever made chocolate because she knew that I... Uh, loved cooking and whatnot and obviously I love fine chocolate and I was like well no you can't just make chocolate you know like you need like a big factory with all these big machines and things um and I was like well you know it's 2014 let me you know I know people make their own beer at home make their own cheese at home you know maybe you can make your own chocolate and so went home and you know discovered that there was like a small community online you know of people repurposing uh other kitchen gadgets to like make um uh, 
a rudimentary chocolate at home, you know, and started dabbling in it there. Just loved it and wanted to learn more. And so just kept going deeper down the rabbit hole. And, you know, eventually I found that you did need a factory and machines <laughs> and things if you wanted to turn it into a business. Um, so here we are. Why was it important to you to have your chocolate business mm. go from bean to bar? Mm. Well, you know, again, having that kitchen experience, I know that you can't make good food without good ingredients. Uh, so if you want to make the best chocolate, you have to ensure that you have the best chocolate by making it yourself. No. Um, so that obviously starts at the farm level and, you know, that's why I often say that deep down more than being just chocolate makers, we are curators of cacao with character, uh, mainly just cause I love using alliteration, but also because it's important, right? Um, uh, again, cause you have to start with the best to make the best. And that's why when people ask me about like, Oh, where did you learn to make chocolate? You know, I always talk about, uh, going to farms and fermentation centers and like learning about that because that actually informs what I do just as much as how to make bonbons and ganache and caramels and things, right? Well, I understand about farms, but mm -hmm. what's a fermentation center? Uh, yeah, so a lot of people are surprised to find that chocolate is a fermented food. Um, it starts off as the seed of the cacao fruit. Um, and then that seed is fermented, um, anywhere from three to seven days, uh, depending on the microclimate, the terroir, the genetics, then it's dried for about the same amount of time. That's where the precursors to chocolate flavor really come from. I can certainly, you know, try my best and do the best I can with terrible stuff, but I'd say, you know, 60% of the flavor is going to happen before I ever get the beans, right? Really? Uh, yeah, so that's why it's just as important for me to know, uh, know the producers, know the farmers, know, like, what they're doing, um, and know that they're doing it, you know, correctly and consistently. Christopher, I imagine some people are scratching their heads because they may not even know what is cacao, would you explain what that is and take us through your process of how cacao becomes candy? Oh, of course. And a lot of that confusion would be because of uh, various marketing and advertising in the last uh, you know, 10 or 15 years of cacao being a superfood and everything. And it's why I use it so much because it's, you know, it sounds so much better now, <laughs> uh -huh. but cacao, uh, technically should be the word used for uh, the tree and the fruit, theobroma cacao, from which chocolate is made. Now, technically, after they're fermented and dried, the seeds of the cacao fruit should be known as cocoa beans. So basically, we start with the cocoa beans. Um, when we receive them, again, they've been fermented and dried, um, as is regulation. We then sort them, take out any foreign objects, mostly just other plant parts. Um, so once we've sorted the cocoa beans, we then roast them. Uh, then they are winnowed, which is the process of cracking the cocoa bean and removing the thin shell. And then we're left with our cocoa nibs, which you may see in grocery stores sometimes. Right? And those cocoa nibs, we then crush and refine down for several days, along with whatever other ingredients are going in primarily like Louisiana sugar. If we're making a milk chocolate, 
milk powders, uh, cocoa butter for sure. And after refining for a few days, uh, we then put it in a machine called a conch, which is a specialized machine for chocolate making, uh, wherein we're basically developing the mouthfeel and the flavor profile um, using forced heat and agitation. And once that's done, we sift it, make sure we have a final smooth product. And yeah, then it's either tempered up into bars, bonbons, other delights. Tell me about your manufacturing process. Mm. What's special about it and how you come up with these incredible flavor combinations and things you do with chocolate. Mm. Well, I think uh, what sets us apart um, in our bonbon production specifically uh, from other makers is that we actually produce our own chocolate and our own couverture, which is very rare for people that are making bonbons, right? Like usually... If you're a bean bar chocolate maker, you're just making bars. Um, and maybe you'll make flavored bars, of course, and maybe the occasional truffle or something, but usually not a full-on confection production. Um, so there's really only a handful of us in the U.S. Um, that do that. Um, so that's definitely a big thing. And as far as uh, different flavors, um, a lot of that is you know informed by my upbringing here in New Orleans. You know, obviously we bring a local flavor to everything we do. What would be some of your most surprising flavors or what's your hit parade of what people love the most? Mm. I think uh, one of our biggest uh, surprises that people love is our duck blind, for instance. Uh, the bonbon consists of two layers, uh, three if you count the chocolate shell, uh, which is dark chocolate, and then a top layer of a duck fat caramel uh, on top of a white chocolate five spice ganache. Uh, so the whole thing kind of comes together in a nice, sweet, savory package that people aren't expecting to love as much as they do. So yeah, that's definitely... Oh, <laughs> oh that's example. lovely. So now that you are here on Magazine Street, you're offering the public a very different experience mm-hmm. than, you know, sort of grab and go as your retail was over on South Broad. Mm-hmm. So. Tell me about the experience of your cafe. How do you describe this place and what are the special things you're offering people here? Mm. Sure. Uh, We do uh, offer an eclectic mix for those that have different needs. So we do have the grab and go people that just pop in for a nice gift uh, that they can put together pretty quickly. especially during the holidays, we have uh, both pre-made boxes, although most people want to play the kid in the candy store and pick out their own uh, special pieces one by one for their loved ones and colleagues and friends. Um, But then we also obviously have a full array of cafe offerings, espresso-based beverages, ice cream, of course, chocolate-based beverages as well. So you can definitely kick your feet up and relax. uh, We've been told that the vibe is very chill and (laughs) so people love coming and uh, just experiencing the nice quiet fun cafe environment uh, over a nice cup of drinking chocolate or a couple bonbons a la carte things like that well among the many things that you do for the city you certainly are such a great ambassador Mm. you must have fans all over the country perhaps all over the world. Mm. Tell me about how you're exporting our culture through chocolate here. 
Oh, absolutely. I uh, have a lot of help from the customers themselves who just happen upon me, uh, or maybe they seek us out because they're looking for great chocolate uh, while they're here visiting New Orleans. Um, and then they come in and they find uh, a really wonderful gift to bring home to those I love. And uh, so we've definitely had people be like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, so-and-so gave me this after their trip to New Orleans. So then, you know, it really got me excited about coming back you know, myself, uh, to New Orleans to check out everything the city has to offer. So it's kind of a nice symbiotic, uh, relationship we got going. So how has piety and desire been received in the rest of the world? Oh, well, actually, uh, just a couple of months ago, we, um, were actually named the top chocolate shop in the U S according to the, uh, USA today, 10 best readers poll. <gasps> Well, bravo. That's fantastic. Thanks. Well, I always knew that um, we had the best customer base. And I feel like being a Reader's Choice Award, then it just pretty much proves that, that we have the best customers. Christopher, thank you so much for welcoming us into your magical chocolate shop. Of course. Always great to sit down with you, Poppy. Thanks. That was Christopher Nobles owner and executive chocolatier of Piety and Desire Chocolate in New Orleans. If you can't treat yourself to a visit to Christopher's Chocolate Cafe, visit him online. You'll find the link on our website, poppytooker.com. traditional holiday gifts are grown here in Louisiana, ship beautifully, and are healthy and delicious as well? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this fall. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, Request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter.
This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What traditional holiday gifts are grown here in Louisiana, ship beautifully, and are healthy and delicious as well? It's citrus, of course. Most believe oranges have been a popular addition to Christmas stockings only since the Great Depression because of their affordability. But actually, the tradition has origins in the lore of St. Nicholas, who was said to have dropped three bags of gold down a chimney to give three young maidens a dowry. This stocking stuffer was hugely popular in the 19th century when oranges were scarce and a rare treat. Now, oranges are one thing, but I think Louisiana Satsumas are really something special. They're not well distributed outside of the state, so anyone who receives a box of those easy-to-peel, sweet-as-sugar Satsumas will simply love them. For the very best, I suggest you head to your farmer's market, where all the Louisiana citrus is plentifully available these days. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Louisiana Satsumas are real Louisiana Eats. Bob Arsenault, owner of Orleans Coffee. New Orleans has been a city of coffee consumers for literally hundreds of years. In fact, we're famously known for our cafe au lait. So for a coffee company to last in this town, it's got to have a lot to offer. Orleans Coffee roasts a wide variety of blends that are served in dozens of restaurants and coffee shops. They sell coffee equipment to businesses and blends by the pound directly to consumers. It seems they do it all. Thus, it's no surprise Orleans Coffee is celebrating four decades of delightfully quenching thirsts. Bob Arsenault, big congratulations are in order. Today, we're here to talk about 40 Years of Orleans coffee. Yes, I like to say I started when I was 12, but that's, <laughs> but that's not true at all, actually. It's uh, a lot of work went into this, but I didn't start the company. I do, do have to make that clear. Are you from New Orleans? I am not. I'm from Morgan City. Moved to Homa, finished high school there, and went on to Nichols so I could go to Harvard on the bayou. <laughs> and... Uh, and I moved to New Orleans in 86. In 1986, what were you intending to do? Wine. Ah. So I fell in love with wine, you know, um, probably junior, senior year of high school and, and into college. And I ended up working at a little wine shop in Homa. And um, I did work for Martin Wine Cellar with a business they had downtown. Uh-huh. It's called Downstairs Deli. I was there for a while. And I worked at D.H. Holmes Wine Department in the Outback. I know you know the Outback. Of course huh? I do. Of I course met, I do. I met the coolest people uh, over there. What it a was, great memory to a, have. Right. I love that. I still say I know more about wine than I know about coffee. Well, I, I don't know about that. Your love of coffee, as I understand it, 
dates back to a trip to Guatemala in 1991. Is that correct? That's correct. I started working for PJ's Coffee in 1988. I worked for Phyllis Jordan, and we had the original Maple Street location, the original two-lane location, that glass building, and Magazine Street location, which is still there. And a few years into that, Phyllis sent me on a trip to Guatemala with a lot of people who really turned out to be legends in the in the uh, industry. And I learned how to cup coffee, and I learned so much about Guatemalan coffee, so it's still my favorite to this day. Ah, and so tell me how you end up in the Orleans coffee business. Well, I was working for Phyllis for six years, and then there was an opportunity to start up a new roasting business in Covington. Uh, there are two women who own Coffee Rainy over there, Anne Jemison, Angel Darling, and they had those a location in Mandeville and Covington and a franchise in Metairie, and they wanted to start their own coffee roasting business. So I said, hey, look, if you really want to do that, I'm your, I'm your guy. So we put a deal together. I helped them start Covington Coffee Works. We were on Columbia Street, downtown Covington, and had a little roaster in the shop window. So I, I picked a certain brand roaster. It was a brand called uh, the San Franciscan, 25-pound batch roaster. So I'm roasting in the shop window when people walking by. That's really cool. And what year was that? 1995. Oh, my goodness. So interesting times. And after about two and a half years, I got a call from a green coffee importer who said, the guy that owns Orleans Coffee He'd like to interview you. He's got a position open. Of course, it was called Coffee Roasters of New Orleans at the time. So, mm-hmm. so I interviewed and I took the job. It was a chance to come back to New Orleans. So I was working downtown at the roasting facility we had. And that was really interesting, working for Bill and Kathleen Seamers. Bill had bought Coffee Roasters of New Orleans, a wholesale coffee roaster from the original owners, Bob, Shea, and Don Sturdivant. And then two weeks later... He had an opportunity to buy Orleans Coffee Exchange, which was a retail coffee store, not a coffee shop, but a coffee store Mm. at 712 Orleans Avenue in the corner. And so he bought that. So he merged the roasting together. But at the same time, that coffee shops, you know, Starbucks and everybody were just popping up all over the country. So, Bob, from your point of view, I mean, it's hard to think back 40 years and Think how the industry has grown and changed because it's hardly recognizable, I'm sure, today from what you first knew. Coffee shops back then were more of a remnant space, like someone would find a some rundown piece of a building that didn't need much to kind of clean it up, just clean up the walls and the plumbing and slap some junk paint on it, get some junk furniture random chairs and tables uh-huh. and find a used espresso machine. Not that anybody even knew how to operate an espresso machine back then. <laughs> and Oh, God, the things I saw. And the coffee that was available at a lot of coffee shops was just so bad because people just didn't really know anything. Yeah. And once Starbucks started popping up and people were visiting those and go, oh, coffee's a thing. So then people realized they set the bar for what a coffee shop should look like. So you had... Better locations, better furniture, better equipment, espresso machines. You realize you needed to find somebody to 
buy espresso machine from, learn how to operate it, buy good coffee, how to make how to make a cappuccino, how to pull a proper shot of espresso. And how do you see the coffee industry today? Well, unfortunately, it's still all over the place. And um, there's more of a homogenization, uh, homogenization of coffee styles. But let's just take a quantum leap into the future when the Specialty Coffee Association was formed and started having conventions and conferences and expos. And the education really came into play where people around the country were coming together to share information and roasting styles and brewing techniques and creating some formality and creating some standards of roasting styles and degrees. How is New Orleans different from the rest of the country? Chicory. Yeah. Chicory. Um, coffee and chicory, it's not going anywhere. No, it's not. It's not. It's very... <laughs> It's it's still very popular. We sell a lot of coffee and chicory, or pure chicory even, on our website. And uh, our wholesale customers, you, like if you're a tourist and you come into New Orleans, you're going to drink that. Just like if you go to Seattle, you're going to eat some salmon somewhere. But roasting styles have changed in New Orleans. And that's probably one of the most important things I'd like to convey today that, you know, we continually look for better coffees. We improve our offerings. Uh, instead of something maybe sort of kind of generic 20 years ago, we're looking for something more specific. Now I sell coffee and other coffee roasters around the city and the country. We sell coffee from one farmer. I, I can have a Colombian coffee that I sell that came from one farm that one lady produces. And so that's the terroir. Mm-hmm. You know, of her coffee, you know, her the variety of varieties of beans that she used, her processing. Yeah. And it's not going to taste exactly like every other Colombian coffee. It's, you know, unique in the, in that sense. Bob, describe for us your business. You, you've got so many facets to it. I manage it with great people who have been with us a really long time. So I have a great staff. We have a little shop on Britannia Street. I think it's the smallest coffee shop in the country. <laughs> it's about 400 square feet. And what's the, what do you all call it? We call it Orleans Coffee Espresso Bar. It's right across from Turo Hospital. And it does a really good business. It serves people who are coming and going to and from the hospital, right? We are a couple of businesses in one. We, we have a lot of – our business is primarily wholesale. We roast and sell to coffee houses you know, in town, out of town, out of state. You've got you have over a hundred restaurants and cafes that you all service. Is that right? That's right. That's right. The majority of our business is wholesale, selling coffee to coffee houses in town, out of town, out of state, and we have a lot of customers. We refer to them as mail order customers because that's how it all really started. People calling us or sending us mail with mm-hmm. with their order and a check. And, uh, of course, it's all website now. Right. And we have people who've been buying from us for years and years and years, even like 20 years. So we have mail-order customers or retail customers, if you want to call them that, don't realize that we have a wholesale division that they're buying from our website, which is just a small percentage of our overall sales. We sell coffee brewers, espresso machines, grinders, and we train 
coffee shop owners and managers how to operate the equipment. So that division is called Perfect Shot Espresso Service. And we sell a lot of tea. We package it all under a brand name, New Orleans Royal Tea. Little play on words there. Uh-huh. And seven years ago, we came out with a new brand. We realized that we weren't selling coffee to your typical grocery store consumer. Not everybody is going to spend a lot of money on coffee. There's Everybody's got their own value system, right? So we realized we're selling to people who, for some reason or another, are going to spend a pretty penny on coffee. But what about the people who don't? What are people who buy the brands that are in the five, six, seven dollar range? So we came up with Parish Coffee Works. Small batch, handcrafted coffee from Central and South America, nothing terribly exotic. We don't use any country names like Colombian or Ethiopia. It's medium roast blend, dark roast blend, coffee and chicory, decaf, and they're all very good, very solid coffees, and we sell those in supermarkets all around town. And our sales keep growing all the time. And we also moved our flavored coffee category to the Parish Coffee line, and we sell those in supermarkets as well. So tell me, Bob, how are you and Orleans Coffee celebrating this incredible achievement of 40 years in business? Well, it's New Orleans. We have to have a party. We're having a party. You know, we need to thank all the people who've opened coffee shops and restaurants uh, that have been with us for anywhere from, you know, five weeks to five years. To I mean, I've got some 25 and 30-year customers. And you have a special coffee that you've brought out? We did. We did. Uh, we came up with Anniversary Blend. I know the name is just real creative, you know. But we wanted to come up with something a little different. I charged my roaster, my roast master, Greg Hill. I said, let's come up with something that isn't anything like anything we currently have in our offerings. And so we tried a few different blends. So we have a really nice blend of coffee from Costa Rica, Ethiopia, and El Salvador. And I think it's gorgeous. It has a lovely nose on it, just sniffing it through the package. It's like a a caramel, warm, roasty, toasty sort of, almost like a food scent. And it you'll, smells you'll delicious. You'll even find it a little on the, the fruity berry side. I know that sounds funny for coffee. Since the beginning of the city, just about, there have been... Coffee importers, coffee roasters, coffee merchants, coffee shops. What sets Orleans Coffee apart from everybody else? Wow, that's a great question. Um, we don't try, you know, we don't try to be everything to everybody, but we, we, I guess, we end up doing it anyway. I mean, we just have so many coffees to offer. Um, I think people can, like I said, you can stay in our catalog and you could taste the world of coffee. Bob, thank you so much for taking us on this delicious trip into the Orleans coffee world of coffees. It's been thank so you. interesting. Thanks thank for you. coming to see us. Well, thank you for having me, Poppy. It was wonderful being here. That was Bob.
Bob Arsenault, owner of Orleans Coffee, celebrating 40 years in business. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>